0: I hope you're still in Mark chapter Four. We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark. It's been a little bit since we've been here, but we are in it now, back in Mark chapter four. This is part number eight, where you're going to be diving into perhaps a very familiar story. It's the parable of the sower. We might also be called the parable of the four soils, but regardless. We're going to enter into it this morning and see what God's word has to say to us. I am enjoying this series through this gospel. A gospel in which you might want to say it's a a no holds barred gospel. in the fact that Mark is just presenting scene after scene of Jesus doing this thing and doing that thing. And he's presenting it in a very matter of fact way. That here's Jesus, here's who he is, and these are the things that he has done and he is doing, and these are his actions. And here uh, we are given perhaps an abnormality in the gospel in that we are given an extended dialogue. We don't have much of these in this gospel. It's not like the gospel of Matthew where you are given long passages of Jesus speaking long discourses. Mark is, uh, is different in that way and records much shorter dialogues of Christ. But here we're given uh, perhaps the longest in the gospel, at least in Mark's recording of it. And Jesus, as you know, as we've been looking through, the hostility around Jesus, this teacher from Galilee, has been growing. There's much criticism that has been uh, laid upon him. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, this criticism has escalated now into a conspiracy against him. If you look back at verse 6 of chapter 3, you can see it. The Pharisees, it says, went forth... And straightway, immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him. That is, Jesus. How they might destroy him. They've gone from criticizing him to trying to question him. To now, they are working a way to destroy him physically. They are looking a way to execute him. And yet, as we've seen, that does not deter the multitudes... That does not deter the fact that when Jesus goes to such and such in a region, people crowd him, come to see him, and see what he can say and do for them. If you look actually back at those verses, it says in verse 8 of chapter 3, And from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. From all around, all surrounding regions and areas, they were coming to see this Jesus. And they were trying to see this Jesus because they know that there's something about him that's different. And yet, here, what we're going to see is Jesus begin the sifting process, we might say. We looked at a couple weeks ago this idea of Jesus separating those who were coming to him in two camps. Friends and enemies, family and foe. And we saw that that was the dividing sword that he would use and wield upon the crowds that followed him and the world in general. In fact, we would have uh, those who are a faithful family and those who are his enemies by unfaith. And he was talking about this. This is why he ends chapter 3 with this discussion of who makes his family. It's those who are in front of him. He says, verse 34 of chapter 3, and he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. And here, in chapter 4, we get a really good insight into Jesus sifting these crowds these crowds were coming to him and not all were honest in their coming. Not all were actually seeking Jesus and his teaching of salvation and doctrine. They were seeking perhaps his benefits. Perhaps the things that he could do for them. His healings. His miracles. And he was always frustrating... Their sort of beliefs of who the Messiah should be, we've entitled this series Unexpected, because Jesus is the unexpected Messiah. He's coming in, doing things, and saying, I am the Messiah, the one that you have read about of old. And yet he's doing things that frustrate their views of the Messiah. Eating (coughs) with sinners and outcasts not uh, fraternizing with those who were prestigious or powerful or popular and you know whereas they perhaps fancied a messiah who was going to come with a sword on his side and riding on a horse to overthrow this roman rule here he comes and he comes from nowhere he comes from a, a nobody family and he says i'm the messiah and he's dining with sinners and outcasts and touching, unclean people at every turn. And here he begins. He begins the true sifting of these crowds, the separating them of them from those who were seeking him honestly and truthfully, and those who were not. this parable. The parable of the sower is perhaps the most famous, we might say. It's the hallmark parable. And I think it's one that really tells and gives us a really intriguing insight to the teachings of Christ here as he begins his ministry. So look at verse 1 through 9 again as we see Jesus iterate this parable to us. It says, And he began to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship, and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, Behold, there went out a sower to sow. This is, of course, one in a trilogy of parables revolving seeds, revolving this ideas of agriculture and farming. You can see the rest of them beginning in verse 26 through verse 34. Those are the other two. But these parables, I think, really are representative of that very phrase in verse 2, which it says, And he taught them many things by parables. I don't think these are the only set of parables he spoke to them that day. It's just he spoke many of them and here's some that they are recorded for us. And here we have to make mention of this parable, of course, the sower. Because it is mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's recorded in much the same way in each of those gospel accounts. And therefore we have to pay attention if it's recorded in all of them. And I think oftentimes our familiarity with these stories, these parables, these things we might have learned in Sunday school on the flannel graph. (laughs) That sort of familiarity might breed a little bit of contempt for these stories. It might actually be a detriment to actually listening to them and seeing them as they are. And seeing what the spirit can say to us. We can often presume what the story is going to say and what the word is going to say to us. We know the story. The sower goes out and sows seeds and such. And it's also, I think that familiarity with it, we can often kind of engender this sort of belittling of the disciples. You know, they come to him later and they ask him what this parable meant. And we're looking at the disciples from our perspective and saying, how could you not know? How could you be so dense to not see what Jesus was trying to do? But put yourself in the moment. Put yourself on this seashore with these disciples. This crowd who is listening to this teacher. Who's claiming to be the Messiah now. And he's not doing Messiah-like things. And he's ruffling all these religious feathers of all these pharisaical people. And now he's breaking into a teaching. He's saying, hear me, hear this. And he starts talking about farming. And he gives no sense in which there's a double meaning. He just says, here is the story. We would have much the same reaction. Much, I think, the same response to Jesus' teaching. We would be much like the disciples coming up to him after him. What did this mean? What are you talking about in this story? You might have heard in your Sunday school classes that a parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. And that's really kind of quaint and cute, and, but I don't think it goes far enough. It kind of gets the gist, perhaps, but really a parable is not something that was employed by Jesus. He wasn't the first one to use a parable. A parable was a common uh, teaching method of many of the Greek scholars during this day, in which they employed comparisons or metaphors, which is really what that word parable means. It's a metaphor of one thing meaning another. It's not necessarily just an allegory. But it's a, a metaphor to see through the meaning. And here Jesus is taking this very uh, sort of scholarly method of teaching. And he's employing it and using it in the common vernacular. To, in the common day. And he uses it from actually here on out. He's going to use parables as his predominantly primary method of teaching. And why? Well, it's because of the reason that we will find in this parable. The reason why he will continue to use parables is found here. Look at verse 34. It says, but without a parable, spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. He was going about speaking only in parables, only in metaphors. So this is Jesus. He comes and he launches into this agricultural story. Just about a normal everyday farmer throwing seed around with no apparent double meaning. He just says here's the story. About this farmer. And he uses this everyday image. Look what he says. Behold there went out a sower to sow. It was an everyday common thing that they would be familiar with. It would immediately resonate with those who were in his audience. In his congregation we might say. That uh, what he was talking about. He didn't need to explain the methodology. He just says, here's a sower, and he's throwing his seed around on his land, on his property, doing his his farming business. And look at what he says. And it came to pass, verse 4, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Wayside literally means road or traveler's way. It was thrown on the path that many travelers and those who were traversing along these highways would go. And so it fell on this hardened road, this hardened soil that had no ability to hold any sort of seeds. It had no ability to take root. These seeds are just falling on nothing short of just concrete soil. Hardened ground that had no ability for them to grow at all. And so these seeds are left exposed. Left exposed on the ground, making for easy pickings for these birds to come and snatch them up. It says, and the fowls of the air came and devoured them. They were, it was easy targets for these birds to come. They had good eatings that morning. Then look at the next, verse 5. Jesus continues, and some fell on stony ground. Where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Stony ground doesn't necessarily mean like gravel. It really just means what that idea he's conveying is this ground that is rocky that has a very thin layer of soil over the top of it. A layer of soil that's so thin that it does contain a little bit of moisture for these seeds to sprout and grow. As it says, they spring up quickly, immediately, but they had no root They had no ability to go deep into the ground and have a firm, steady root uh, system for them to support themselves. And such, they withered away at this high noon of the day. They had no ability to be viable, long-lasting plants because they have no depth. No depth. And they withered away. Look at the third soil. Verse 7. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no fruit. Thorns really means they're sort of brambles or briars. We might see or or know them as weeds. It's, It's falling among ground that is untended and unkempt. Ground soil that is afflicted with just insurmountable weeds. That are allowed to grow up with the seeds. You notice here even in this soil that the seed is allowed to grow but what is allowed to grow with it the weeds the thorns which it says choke this plant so that it can yield no fruit it has no fruit bearing capabilities because those weeds those thorns which should have been uprooted are left to choke this stalk choke literally meaning to strangle or suffocate it. This otherwise healthy crop is now strangled and suffocated and choked away because of these thorns that are allowed to grow with it. Verse 8 though, he concludes his parable. He says, another seed fell on good ground. And did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. It yields abundant fruit, abundant harvest here. It yielded an enormous amount of crop. You notice he just leaves this story as it is. Look at verse 9. And he said unto them, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. That's his story. That's his parable. I could act like Jesus this morning and just close my Bible and walk away. And that would be enough. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that to you. He's using this parable for a very important reason. And he's saying it in this way for a very important reason. he's challenging him to carefully consider my words. Again, he's at this juncture. He's beginning the sifting of these crowds. He's beginning the separation process into those who were truly listening and those who were not. And that's where we get to where he actually interprets this parable in the next set of verses. Look at verse 13. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. This, of course, I think is one of the more interesting parables in all of the Bible. Why? Because it is actually interpreted by Christ himself. We're not left to wonder what the parable means because he gives it to us. It's always intriguing when you listen to sermons and you hear these preachers try and come up with these cute, fancy ways of studying the Bible and relaying it to us. And here, we can't get involved in any of that because the, the explanation is given to us. Who's going to go against Jesus explaining his own story? Jesus here is interpreting his story for us. The seed, he says, represents the word. And I think it is common to interpret the word as if it's the gospel message. If it's the gospel message, then that puts us in the sower's point of view. It puts us us as the farmer who is spreading the gospel message. But I don't think that's what he is actually intending here to mean. I think actually that the sower is God the Father. And the word that's being sown is actually the word of God himself, which is Christ. We know from John chapter 1 that God, in in the son of Jesus Christ, is the word of God. Let me read some of those verses at the beginning of John's gospel. John 1 verse 1, he opens his gospel with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is Jesus. He is the Logos, the Word of God, the mind of God, personified in bodily form. And I think that's what he's saying here. The Father. Has sent his word, his son into the world and he has sowed him in all corners of the created order. He has sent his son into all corners of the earth. The seed here is the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. And then the soil very clearly represents the souls, the hearts of men. Those who heard the word. Those who were confronted by Christ himself. They were confronted with his teaching. And here we see very different responses. Very different ways in which these hearers would receive the word. Receive Jesus' teaching. Receive Jesus himself. Look at verse 15. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. He's referencing those seeds which fell on the wayside, which fell on the road, which fell on that hardened concrete soil, which had become hardened and desensitized. Had no ability To Receive this word. The souls of these hearers were unreceptive, were uh, were not at all moved by this word that had come to them. The truth had no chance to take root because they had become hardened. It reminds me going back really quickly to uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Remember where he heals the man in the synagogue? Again, he's frustrating the Pharisees. Look at 3 verse 5. And it says, And when he had looked around about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored whole as the other. He's grieved. That these Pharisees, who had spent so much time in the word of God, had become hardened soil. Desensitized to the word of God itself such that then when they are confronted by the word, they aren't even aware of it. They aren't even aware that it's in front of their faces and so they begin to conspire against it. He is grieved at these very hearers who were influencing others in Jesus' crowds. Desensitizing and hardening others away from his word. His heart burned for these types of hearers. Hearers that are on the wayside. He was burdened by that. But look at verse 16. We have the second second soil. The second soul that hears the word. And it says, and these are they. Likewise which are sown on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time afterward when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake immediately they are offended here these seeds which fall on stony ground he is actually referencing this idea again the word that is sown on men's hearts but it does not affect Their souls. He's speaking to those who are shallow soil, those who have this word sown to them, and the word sprouts. It says the seed, it sprouts, it grows, but again, it has no root. The effect is only an emotional one, the effect is only one that's driven by their emotions to it. He says they receive it with gladness, but they have no roots in themselves. You know, it, Lydia, my little two-year-old daughter, she loves jumping in puddles. And it does not matter the size of the puddle. The puddle could be two inches wide and half a centimeter deep. But she will love to jump in it. She loves to try and make some sort of splash. <laughs> She loves to try and ruin the outfit that mommy has chosen for her for that day. <laughs> but you know, thinking about a puzzle, a puddle, it does not matter the size of a puddle. It is easily stirred. Yes, by Lydia's little feet stamping in it or whatever causes a disruption in that puddle. It is easily made to ripple. I think that's exactly what he is getting at here with these types of hearers. They are easily stirred, but they have no depth. They're easily moved by the emotions of the word, but they have no root in their hearts. It doesn't affect their souls. It touches their emotions, but it doesn't get to their heart. This faith here is surface level. It's a faith that's on stony ground, on shallow soil that has no root. And so when they are afflicted, they are easily swayed, easily moved away from this truth that they had before received with gladness. And now, in persecution, in affliction, they are, it says, offended. They are moved They are strained at this idea that how could this word offend me in this way? It's because they had a surface level faith. This to me is why I'm always nervous about worship concert converts. I love a good concert. Hillsong can put on a good concert. But don't be driven by just the emotions of that place. If you're putting your hope in that, that can be easily swayed, such as what he's saying here. Don't be so swayed by the emotions of your conscience. Be swayed and moved by something else, which we will get to. It's this faith that's built on feelings. Feelings which don't last. He says they endure but for a time. And then at the first sign of adversity, at the first sign of affliction and persecution, they are offended. They are scandalized. By that moment. Look at verse 18. He describes the third soil. He says. These are they which are sown among thorns. Such as hear the word. And the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches. And the lusts of other things. Entering in choke the word. And it becometh unfruitful. Here as we mentioned earlier. This is the untended soil. It's the heart. That is unkempt. The heart that is soon choked by the world's cares, it says. Is strangled and suffocated by competing gods. This heart, this here, receives the word, it says. And they are sown among thorns and they hear the word. They hear it, the word has an effect on them. But they are soon made to be unfruitful by the choking of the world, by the cares of this world and the lusts of other things, it says. These competing deities in the soul that try to vie for our attention, here he's saying, this is that type of hearer. Who hears the word and sees that it is good. Hears that it is for them. But are so distracted and caught up with all the cares of this world. With all the things that it has to do or be or become. They are encumbered by the world's offerings. And they are made ineffectual for God. This I believe to be one of the saddest outcomes he describes here. The saddest outcome because it is these hearers he is describing that have an opportunity to serve the Lord with their lives. And yet they are encumbered and distracted and made to be destroyed by the very thorns that they they themselves did not uproot. It's untended soil. Jesus coming to them, giving him his word of truth and grace. And yet... They are made to be choked, made to be strangled from that mission because of these competing deities, these thorns which grow with them, these competing cares. Look at what he describes, lastly, the good ground. And these are they, verse 20, which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. These are they, he's describing, who receive the word with truth and humility and honesty. They hear Christ and what he says about himself and they accept it in faith. And they are those who are about the business of God. Those who are hearing the word and receiving it with faith are therefore spreading that faith. They are bearing the fruits, it says, of the gospel. Some 30, 60, some 100 fold. I think it's important to note here that Jesus is mentioning of the varying yields of fruit. It's not. I think it's not to get us to see that there's some sort of varying levels of good ground. As if there's some good ground that yielded 30, but there's some better ground that yielded 100. I don't really think that's what he's trying to get us to say. I know that's true in agriculture, but it's not true, I think, in what Jesus is pointing out here. I think he's not getting that to see that, to make sure we're the really good fertile soil. He's getting us to see that he is sovereign over all the results of our fruitfulness that he the word the one who is sown sown by the father he has the sovereignty over our fruitfulness he is the one who has the sovereignty and the control over our success so long as we don't get in the way you see that you see that this good ground it didn't do anything it received the word <laughs> And the word did the work. It received the seed and the seed sprouted and grew and yielded fruit. The ground didn't get in the way. Unlike the thorns. Unlike the rocky stony ground or the ground that had become desensitized. And I think the good news that Jesus is inferring by explaining this parable in this way. Is that we are all these soils. That there are, at times, it's not just finding which soil are you right now. But it's recognizing that we are all this way at different times. But the good news is that there is no ground that is so bad that it cannot be tilled up again. There's no soil that is so far gone that it can't be made to be good ground again. Good ground that can receive the word by faith and receive it rightly Receive the word in faith. And here's where we get to the purpose. Because bookending Jesus' interpretation of this parable are two fascinating scenes. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. They were asking him the meaning. They were asking, Jesus, what are you talking about with this sower, this farmer, and the seed, and these different types of dirt? It's a natural, and it's a good question, I would say. Why are you speaking in this way? Why are you trying to confuse and hide the meaning? And obviously, as we've been saying, Jesus is not after hidden meanings and secrets and mysteries in a Da Vinci Code where you can find the secret to the scriptures. (laughs) That's not what he's after. And in fact, he's going to explain it here. That he's trying to use these parables as a way not to keep truth, but to reveal it. Look at verse 11. He says, And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without all these things are done in parables. And it's evident from an added illustration that he is doing this in a way, yes, he's speaking in parables to reveal the ministry, the mystery of the kingdom, not conceal it. Look at what he says in verse 21. And he said to them, is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? He's ascribing this little story to common sense. Does anyone light a candle and then put it under a sofa? No, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to try to illumine a room and then put it underneath a couch. He had not come. Jesus had not come to keep God's truth a mystery. He had come to reveal the mystery. As he says, it is unto you that know the mystery. The mystery of the kingdom of God. It's through these parables, through these stories... That he's seeking to draw men to himself. Look at verse 22. He says, for there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. You see what he's doing? He's putting a veil over the message. Not to hinder men but to draw them in. To incite their pursuit and to invite their curiosity of what he is talking about. He's saying, if you want to know, you will want to know. If you want to know the truth, this parable will serve to you as a picture. A picture which will get your attention and it will arrest your focus. Which will then become a mirror in which you will see yourself. Which will then become a window in which you can see and learn of me. Learn of the one who is the word of God himself. Jesus was speaking in parables. Not so that people wouldn't find truth. Wouldn't find forgiveness. Wouldn't find the meaning of life so to speak. But so that they who were only after his benefits wouldn't find it. He says, look at verse 11 again. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. He's exposing The unreceptive, unsympathetic, the unfaithful hearers. Those who didn't want anything to do with Christ himself, but with only Christ's benefits. He's saying here that those who are truly drawn to Jesus, drawn to me, drawn to the word, they will come to me. They will seek me and they will find me. But those who have no ears for the truth, they will be turned away. They will be turned away because they have no drive to hear me. They have no drive for the truth. You can see here that he's speaking in these ways to draw men to himself. He's drawing these crowds to see that he is Jesus, the Christ. This idea that he's trying to hide a meeting to find a secret. He's basically blasting that away. It has no bearing here. I think when he's talking about the candle and the candlestick and the light that's illuminating a room, he is saying that that's me. I am the candle, and if I were honestly trying to hide the meaning from men, I would be an absurd teacher. I would be a ridiculous teacher to try and say something and not say what it means. I am the person who illuminates the meaning. I am the candle that illuminates the room. That lights up all the dark rooms of our hearts to perceive and receive this word. To receive this seed and how it should be perceived and received. In faith. In humility. Because this is Jesus. From John 1.1. He is the parable of God. He is the mystery of the kingdom of God himself. He is the mystery of the heavens. The God who had come in bodily form. The creator of all things in the form of a man. The fullness of deity in the form of flesh. He is God's parable to us. He's saying this is me. Receive me How I ought to be received in faith. This is what his sifting process looks like. How do you hear the word this morning? How are you receiving the gospel truth this morning? As you were receiving it as one who has no care for it. Who is hardened to its meanings. Saying this cannot speak to me. This means nothing to me. You are the hardened soil. Which will soon be devoured. The word will soon be taken away. Or are you receiving it with emotion. That is not letting it get to your heart. Not letting it affect your life. You are the rocky ground. Or are you so caught up with the cares of this world. That you are letting thorns grow along with you. Thorns spring up in your soul along with this word. Or are you receiving the word as it ought to be received? With faith, with deference, with humility? This is Jesus' parable to us. This is Jesus' word to us. That he is the parable that illumines all the other stories. And he is the seed that is sown on all the grounds of the earth. And there is no ground that cannot be good ground. There is no soul here this morning that is too hardened for the Lord to work and to save. That is the good news. And that is the good news for us. Let us pray.